Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here at Stoller Family Estate. Uh, it's July 10th, 2017. We're here with Bill Stoller. Uh, and Bill, we're going to start you off with a nice easy question, which is why wine? Why wine? Um, why not? Maybe the better question. Um, well, uh, my start in wine was not until I had graduated from college and had, <clears throat> inter- had some interest and took a class in wine tasting, basically, um, at Portland Community College and enjoyed it and so decided to take a few more uh, educational classes and, and I did and that kind of steamrolled into collecting wine and purchasing wine from various places and, uh, and even somewhat you know, interested in the future of what Oregon was doing mm-hmm. in the wine industry and so I followed up on, on that and you know, eventually our family property came up for sale and you know, that was more uh, pride than perhaps sense, but, <laughs> but sure. uh, acquired it and the rest is what's happened. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing before you got into wine. I know you had a successful business before that as well. <clears throat> uh, the wine business hasn't taken me away from any of my other businesses. So um, I started in downtown Portland as a placement consultant for an employment agency named Acme Personnel Service. And um, 10 years later, they had financial trouble and I bought my job and the office and then continued to to be actually a franchisee of theirs because I was a corporate manager. And then uh, about three months later, they actually ran into financial trouble and um, two other people and myself uh, picked up the pieces and, and uh, they really went bankrupt, and, and so we picked up the pieces and, and developed a, another company, and it's now called Express uh, Employment Professionals. And uh, we, we primarily focused uh, from the very beginning on, on franchising the business of, of staffing offices, which is primarily temporary help. Mm-hmm. So we focused on temporary help, where the other company focused on um, permanent placement. Permanent placement. And so then from there, at some point, that's when you started, you're developing your interest in wine and kind of getting into the wine industry. Um, That certainly gave me the vehicle in terms of being uh, somewhat successful in in the staffing business and the franchising business that in 1993 when the property came up for sale, then I was able to acquire it. Um, And yes, so that that certainly was... uh, um, stepping stone that, that allowed the acquisition. And so as you're, as you're working toward that, uh, give me an idea of how like, your business background sort of helped prepare you to get into this industry. What, did you go, I mean, we talked to a lot of people going without their eyes open, so I'm assuming you were not one of those people. Oh, I, I, think, I think everybody that goes in the wine business gets a little uh, education in many aspects of it. Um, I, I think that uh, you know, people can go into debt 
very quickly and very easily, and it's really hard to come out of that debt. And, and so I, I didn't have to go into debt. I was able to provide capital directly mm -hmm. in, into the business as opposed to borrowing. And so from a financial standpoint, that, that's always been very helpful. Um, but, uh, you know, planting the right plants, planting them in the right location, um, you know, starting your own label. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, 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 it's not easy. And, and people think that uh, winemakers or wine people think that uh, selling them the wine is, is not going to be a problem, but it, but it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't, you can't have inventory that needs to be sold. And um, that's just, you know, money that's kind of being wasted if, if you can't sell what you produced sure. uh, that doesn't go into libraries. So, um, so it, it's a huge education and it's totally different, I, I think, than most other businesses. Um, because, you know, a business-to-business -business sale is a lot different than, different than a business-to-consumer sale. Mm -hmm. so, so that's really the... the uh, the major differences other than it's also an agricultural based uh, industry and, and you know the weather gods are the ones that control how how good the grapes will end sure. up being sure. so give you know, an idea what your business philosophy is and sort of how you've developed it over the years well I, I think you know, as much as possible you, you don't want to get into too much debt and I think you know my father always um, told me that uh, he tries to he tried to pay cash for everything, so he would not have the debt, <laughs> and, or he wouldn't buy it, mm -hmm. or he had a significant amount of down payment for it, so it wouldn't be that difficult. Um, uh, so you know, I, I've always had that as a business philosophy. But you know, more important is the people that you have, the people you employ. Uh, it's the culture that you create. And, and those are the those are the two keys in in I think any business uh, is having the the right culture and then having the people that execute the the culture and the values that that you want to have in business. So you mentioned a little bit about buying the property here and uh, or buying excuse me investing in Shehalem. Uh, that was your first first kind of entree into the industry. So tell me about about your preparation for that and then kind of how you went about doing it. Well, uh, Harry Peterson Nedry has, has certainly been a great mentor in the business um, and in terms of learning about wine and, and, you know, even before getting into the business. But I, I made a small investment in their limited partnership in the vineyards. And then in, uh, at 1992, I, I believe it was, he wanted to go commercial with uh, Shehalem mm -hmm. brand. And so he sent a letter out to all the limited partners, and I was the only one that responded. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so he and I became partners in Shehalem, and we still are today. Um, so, uh, but again, it's been uh, insightful and helpful uh, in, in learning it from the Shehalem side of the business, and, and continues to be. Um, and then really just started uh, wanting to be a grape grower and then several years later just decided then well maybe we should have our own brand and you mentioned this was the family land tell us a little about how you acquired the family land well the the this property was bought by my father and uncle in 1943 and 
1948, they purchased another farm that's two miles away from here. So just after I was born, they, um, my family moved to the other farm and my uncle and aunt and cousins grew up here and then I grew up there. Uh, but we were a very close family and we were up here or they were down there for, for uh, meals and, and birthdays and holidays, etc. So um, uh, after a period of time, then uh, my cousin, John Stoller, uh, took over for his dad. And, uh, and then uh, in 1993, he decided to get out of the business and to sell the farm and, and so forth. And so I was able to come in and, and do that. But it had been a turkey farm for 50 years prior to that. And um, just before uh, getting on tape here, I was seeing the uh, special that the News Register mm -hmm. did on the early history of Turkey Rama. And uh, it's nothing like it is today. <laughs> uh, but I remember going out with my father and, and helping with the turkey races and helping with the cooking and helping with the setting up of the tables and, and, and so forth. And, and it, was, uh, it was fun. But I, 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 I've had the turkey since and I didn't realize it was this last weekend and I uh, would have gone out and got my half turkey if I didn't own that. <laughs> So when you bought the land, you, you, you purchased it with the intention of growing grapes here? Yes, definitely. And you know, what I've always said is that you, know, you just go out and look at the property and, and you know, the land was created to be a vineyard. I mean, there's nothing better than, than grapes to be grown on this land. Um, and so that was the whole objective was, was to fill the, every possible vineyard uh, land space with vines, mm -hmm. and uh, we've pretty much done that. We've got just a, a little bit left, but not much. So what makes, it, what makes the land so special? What makes it so perfect for grapes? Well, you can see the south slope of the Dundee Hills. Uh, that obviously is the first one. And um, uh, having that slope, but we also have, you know, southwest slopes on, on the property. Um, we certainly have the, the right soils uh, for it. Um, and on the west side, we actually have younger soil that's, uh, it's still jory, but, uh, you know, I, I think uh, you can, um, there's younger versions of jory soil that uh, uh, has different names, mm -hmm. and I, I don't think that's important, but, uh, so it, it has that uh, proper uh, soil to grow. It's volcanic, obviously, mm -hmm. and so it's well-drained. Um, and, and just the, um, uh, the climate, uh, I, I, I've never tested it or anybody's never, never uh, analyzed it, mm -hmm. but we probably have four or five microclimates on, on this 400 acre property. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, different, uh, different weather patterns occurred in different areas of the land and mm -hmm. so that that adds to the terroir and and you know having anything that adds something different and so when you put the wines together you you get something that's quite nice so i want to go back a little bit to when you were starting when you were investing in shehalem in, in 1992 mm -hmm. um what did you how did you go about learning what did you what did harry want to teach you what did you need to know to get into the business <laughs> Well, 
he, he, he certainly, I observe more than being taught, or I ask questions mm -hmm. than being taught. But, um, but for the most part, it's just observing mm -hmm. and absorbing. Um, and, and, and that's how you learn. And then you read uh, about uh, uh, different types of wines around the world. And, and then uh, one of the groups in Oregon here put together a book on, on vineyards. Mm -hmm. And there's like about 24 or five chapters. And each chapter, I think, was written by a different uh, uh, viticulturist or winemaker. And so that was fascinating to be able to read that. Um, but, you know, it's just, a lot of it's just self-education, but, but, you know, when you have a mentor and you listen to them, you know, then you, then you learn a lot. So then when you're starting here, what was the, what were your, what was the, the biggest priority for you? What were the first steps? What was the most important thing to you? <laughs> well, I remember walking through uh, the land with, uh, with Harry and Patrice Rion, who we had an affiliation with, uh, from Burgundy. Mm -hmm. and. Um, it's, as Patrice uh, walked the land with us, you know, his, his, his vision is that we'd probably only plant about um, 25 hectares. And, uh, and we have, we'll have over 200 acres, but from a hectare standpoint, it's, uh, um, uh, well, and, and as a matter of fact, that's almost 200 acres. But I think he probably was more like, 50 hectares and so that would be about 125 acres and we won't have double that but we'll have uh, significantly more than that but he wanted to keep things uh, you know sort of separated and keep the uh, echo um, environment to where you, you wouldn't have as much problems later on with insects and, and so forth but uh, but as we also uh, walk the, the land, he, he said, well, the first thing you need to do, though, is to hire someone to sell you wine. <laughs> so, um, so that's a pretty telling story is that, as I mentioned earlier, you, you do have to find someone that's going to, uh, or some way to sell your wine. Mm -hmm. and, and so whether he said someone or you need a program mm -hmm. to sell the wine, uh, which is what I think he really meant. Um, that that was that was the key and the first thing he taught us, but um, uh, but in terms of what we wanted it to be, we wanted it to be Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, um, and then you plant a, you know some other uh, different varietals just to be able to sell from the tasting room and and uh, and that's what we've done. But it's you know ninety plus percent Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And so how have you found, now that you're in the industry, like now you have your, the label, how have you found the sales? Is it, has it been as challenging as he predicted? <laughs> well, I, I think you've got to develop a brand. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's, and then, but you have to have people that, that come by. And, um, but yes, it's, it's, it hasn't been easy. And we had some vintages that we had more inventory than we wanted. Uh, fortunately, we've been um, able to go through that uh, from a library sales mm -hmm. um, and some specials that we've done. Um, but you know, it, it's that word of mouth that really helps sell your wine. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's, uh, there's, there's two key things that have happened with us. Um, and, and it all really evolves around 
people and, and certainly some investment. But you know, our small little tasting room in the original winery that we built uh, was just getting overcrowded. And, and, when, and it was loud and it just, it just needed, um, we needed more space. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so the people were the first ones to tell you that something's got to be done. And so we did, we, we then built a, a new tasting room. And, uh, and that tasting room is somewhat unique in design and, and shows off the, the scenery that, that we have but it looks up the hill as opposed to being up looking mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's one of the unique characters that we have um, here in, uh, at Stoller Family Estate is, is that view that we look up plus it's undulating. And so, so once that was built, uh, we were able to draw people to this site and, and it it, it kind of fed on itself. We had a great tasting room um, staff, and 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 then people just kept coming back. And so, um, even the tour um, groups, um, transportation companies that mm -hmm. that bring people, you know, this is one of the spots that they enjoy bringing their people because they they know they're going to get good service and they're going to get good wine and 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 a great view. Um, so. That has really spawned, and and it's just by word of mouth, people come, and uh, it's not without hard work from our marketing crew um, and our tasting room staff that has done that. And then the other is uh, you, you you have the direct consumer sale, and then you have uh, sales through the distribution channel, mm -hmm. and and about four years ago. Um, uh, we were able to find uh, the right distributor here in Oregon, and, and Young's Market has, has done a, a terrific job for us. They're a great partner, and, and they have uh, just gone beyond expectation in terms of representing our brand and becoming as passionate as our people are about uh, people tasting our wine and drinking our wine. So let's talk a little bit about that. when you're. When you are hiring people to work at Stoller, what are you looking for? What are your key characteristics? Well, you know, people that like people, um, <laughs> people that have good values, um, that are common values that we have. You know, obviously good communicators, um, and and people who can learn uh, to describe wine. So you have to have a uh, a lot of good communication skills, <laughs> and um, you know, I, I it's kind of funny, but. You know, it, it's those majors in college that uh, you, you don't think about very often, but communication, mm -hmm. uh, literature, English, um, even foreign languages uh, comes in handy. But, you know, it, it's just being able to, to make that presentation. Um, you know, so speech classes and mm -hmm. whatnot, you know, those, those kind of the soft skills and the soft classes that, that you take. but. That's what liberal arts is all about, and and, uh, and those people can fit in well here, as well as those that have been in business or or uh, even haven't gone to college. It doesn't that doesn't make much difference. But but you, you just look for you know people that that have a desire and have the attitude and then the aptitude to, to execute. So we don't get to interview too many local liberal arts graduates. So when we do, we always like to ask them: <laughs> Is a graduate of Pacific? 
Uh, tell us a little bit about how liberal arts sort of shaped your perspective going into well, I think college is, is pretty much um, yeah, a liberal arts program because most of the first two years you take is, is, should be you know, some of the general mm-hmm. electives that you're required to do, and whether it's sociology, psychology, uh, English, uh, science classes, history classes. Um, and I've, I've always loved history, and so I always took as many of those courses as I could. I mean, even anthropology, um, that was a fun class. So, so those are the kind of the first two years, and then the last two years you really focus on, on whatever your major is, but then you have electives too, and, and I took my history classes and, <laughs> along with, with uh, the business courses that I took. But, you know, life, um, you know, once you get out of school, and even while you're in school, but everything a person does whether it's their own personal uh, checking account, savings account, house account, whatever, it's, it's, it, it, you have payables, you may have receivables um, if you're selling something, but, but you, you're managing uh, your own household mm-hmm. and, and your, your, your financial situation. And, and it's funny, that's what you learn in business. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of people that are ill-equipped uh, when they when they go to college and even when they finish college, um, uh, that they they don't manage that quite as well as they should have uh, as they as they went along. So, and you know we have a huge student debt problem in this country, and and I think either it was presented wrong or it was taken wrong by the receiver and they didn't quite understand what the obligations would be. But you've got to earn your way. You can't just be given your way through anything. So, so I think it's a key that people have to understand that you, you earn your way through life and things aren't given to you. So sh- shortly after you <coughs> opened, you were involved in the Dundee, um, the, excuse me, the Dundee Hills AVA designation. So tell me a little bit about that and why you saw the need. Well, uh, the Dundee Hills uh, Aviation is didn't really come about when we first started. It came about later, mm-hmm. but we've always been involved in in it. And and I, I think um, most areas like to have another way to describe their their vineyard and their wines. Mm-hmm. And when you can, when you have the Willamette Valley that that covers such a big area. Um, you then want to kind of narrow that and and be able to to be able to describe your particular area and, and that's what a, a, an AVA is American viticultural area mm-hmm. is it's got to have some distinctness with that area mm-hmm. and whether it's soil microclimate um, or just what it produces is, is different than what another uh, AVA is and um, and I think you know people certainly have their um, take on what Dundee Hills is, is significantly has its significance mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to to uh, Shahalem Mountains or Ribbon Ridge or McPinville um, Mountains or Eola Hills or mm-hmm. whatever. What is it to you? What's the, what's distinct about Dundee Hills to you? Well, I, I think uh, <clears throat> we have a little more earthiness. I think to our our wines, uh, we certainly have uh, some really nice red fruits to it, as opposed to the darker fruits. 
Um, we certainly get into the dark cherry, but uh, in many cases it, it might be the lighter cherries. And then, of, and of course, you've got the different clones that, that add, subtract to that, because there are some clones that are definitely bigger and they're, they're not quite as red. Mm -hmm. They're darker reds than, than, uh, than another clone. So, um, so I, it's just a nice combination, I think. And, and you know, just even my tasting today, it's really hard to tell a lot of difference <laughs> between a lot of the wines. But there is differences, and sometimes it could be the winemaking process, and sometimes it's, it's not, but, uh, or it's the year. Um, but, you know, to me, great Pinot Noir does come out of Oregon, and, and uh, mm -hmm. some, uh, some excels, and, and some is not quite as exceptional, but, but overall, it's, it's a tremendous area to, to raise Pinot Noir, sure. and Chardonnay, mm -hmm. and Chardonnay. Sure. So speaking of winemaking, do you, have, do you have much input into winemaking? Do you have a specific preference for how your wine is made, or do you leave it mostly to the winemaker? Well, I think there's another uh, uh, business trait that, that I've learned over the years, and that is delegation. <laughs> and and I think I've, I've learned that pretty well. I'm not trained in winemaking. Um, I'm, not, I'm not probably the greatest taster in the world. I have my own thoughts, my own ideas on it. Um, and usually in blind tastings, it, it, uh, it, pr it produces pretty good results, mm -hmm. uh, speaking of myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, we've um, been fortunate enough to have Melissa Burr uh, ever since we've had our f facility in, in 2005 um, and even uh, two vintages before that, she's helped, she helped make our wine. Mm -hmm. Um, and she's been consistent, uh, and she's growing, mm -hmm. um, and, and our uh, support staff has grown. The vineyard has matured, um, and, and because of that, I, I think our wines get better and better. And um, so I've continued to delegate that. We have two <laughs> other winemakers now, and believe me, I couldn't teach them anything. Uh, so, so I. Um, and, and, you know, my business life has is, is taken me away during much of the trials that they, they do the tastings. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm just not quite, I'm not around enough to, to, to participate as much in, in that. But you're happy with the product? Very happy. <laughs> Very happy. So I noticed as we were around here, there's a lot of, uh, you, obviously sustainability is obviously a big deal to you. Can you tell me a little bit about why that is or why you're... Um, I've always been enthralled with um, solar generation, mm -hmm. and and I think if there was one thing that might describe, um, and it might be two things, um, but I, I really believe that when you build something uh, or you create something, you do it for sustainability purposes. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we built this winery and the tasting room, I said to the architect, I just want it to last 200 years. And, uh, and so in, in making sure that it's built the right way for sustainability. Mm -hmm. and, and then I, I think with, um, with that, and especially the solar generation, is efficiencies. Mm -hmm. and, and by having efficiencies, um, by being able to produce something that doesn't take any other source other than the equipment, the photophotaics, 
and then the converters to convert it from uh, direct uh, to alternate 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 energy mm -hmm. uh, electricity. Um, it, it's it's just an efficient process. So it's out there. Why not take advantage of it? Sure. So uh, so we've put them on three of our structures, mm -hmm. and um, we are energy neutral. Um, and wow. so we produce as much as we uh, as we take from from the um, uh, electrical utility. Wow. And it's also LEED Gold certified. Yes, and and I had not known what LEED um, was, mm -hmm. and and our architect had not done anything with LEED either. But they um, they asked the question if if I'd like to do it, and I said, well, educate me on it. So they had to go get educated, <laughs> and um, so they educated me, and I said, sure, why not? Why not try to do that? Mm -hmm. There there had not been a, a full winery that had been ever. Um, uh, designated with a lead other than a, one other in Ontario, Canada. <laughs> and, um, and it was on the Lake, uh, uh, Ni Niagara Lake, I believe. And, um, and so, so they, um, they were the first mm -hmm. and then we were the second. And uh, we were the first gold lead certified anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it, it's amazing. I mean, you're, you're looking at uh, 13 years ago. Um, when we got our designation, and and there are many, many, many wineries now that are <laughs> certified. Um, there were some structures I found out later that had been um, lead certified mm -hmm. in Portland, mm -hmm. but now I don't know of a building that's not built that's not lead certified. Well, were there any specific challenges um, to what you wanted to do with what it would have to do to be lead certified? We didn't really do anything that I, that I would have done differently. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I said I wanted solar from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've always believed in recycling, and so 95% of the, um, the unusable um, um, material that we had around here was recycled, mm -hmm. uh, or, or the extras. Um, and then in terms of treating the land the way it's supposed to be treated, and, and the the construction materials uh, was very important, and and you learned also, and, and you learn a few things. But one of the things is is paint. Mm -hmm. You know, there there can be paints that are just not good for your your winery and for your wines, mm -hmm. and so you just have you have to select the right kind of paint, the right kind of flooring, and 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 the, what to put on the surface. So so that was a, a nice educational process, but, but everything else um, was things we would have done um, mm -hmm. regardless. Mm -hmm. But I'd, I'd also um, purchased, I don't know how many years ago, uh, prior to building this, probably seven years, eight years prior, some of the uh, old beams, um, clear growth, um, Mm -hmm. Timbers mm -hmm. that uh, in you know seventy years ago, that's what they built with. Mm -hmm. You know the um, uh, old growth timbers, and and so we s bought those and we kept them. And so most of our um, uh, support beams 
and some of our cross beams um, and everything outside that, that people see is from that um, uh, warehouse that was in, in Northwest Portland. So, um, so maybe that's what probably initially started it. But, uh, but you know, they're just beautiful. And they stay, sure. stay very, very, very nice. And they last. So another part of sustainability. <laughs> Well, that's a cool way to be a pioneer in the industry. I mean, to have the first lead gold in the state, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Well, in the United States. In the United States, <laughs> even that, even more so. Even more so. Um, so you've talked a little bit about this already, but uh, I'm sort of curious if you have like, kind of an overarching like, wine philosophy, like what you, either what you like or what you care about within, within wine. Well, an overall wine philosophy. Um, I, I think that when we first started making our wine, I wanted to make a reserve level of wine. And reserve level is not always um, inexpensive. So, um, but everybody gets started by buying something that they can afford. And when you first get started, you can't afford much. So I, I really wanted to have a lower tiered wine, an entry wine, if you will, for, for consumers. Mm -hmm. And then we would have our reserve level. And uh, because the reserve level is what I wanted to make, uh, what I really wanted to make. Mm -hmm. So, so we, I think we've accomplished that really well in, in having some entry wines and then having uh, the, uh, the reserve wines that people can progress to. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as time goes on, you know, there are people that like ultra, um, ultra premium wine, and so we've uh, successfully done that as well mm -hmm. as made, made a third tier um, that people who really enjoy um, something quite remarkable um, can 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 buy it as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, kind of to pull back a little bit now and kind of look at the industry a bit more in general. Um, in the years you've been in it, you've now been in it almost twenty-five years. Um, what have you seen? What are the biggest changes you've seen? It, 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 besides size, what are the biggest changes you've seen in, in the Oregon wine industry? Well, uh, certainly it's brought a lot more people. And I, I don't think the Allison Inn and Spa would have been there if it hadn't been for the wine industry. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's brought uh, restauranteurs. Um, it's brought people from all over the world uh, who've come and visited. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, uh, our forefathers who created the International Pinot Noir Celebration had a great vision. Um, Oregon Pinot Camp, which caters to the trade, mm -hmm. those that sell the wine to the consumer uh, in, in distribution systems, um, has grown to really help um, the region. Um, but I think you're, you're seeing um, tourist facilities being built, uh, and, and one of the, it's not necessarily remarkable because it, before I got in the wine industry, I, I participated in, in other wine regions, in, in uh, catered dinners, mm -hmm. or just the environment of, of having some sort of, uh, um, I don't necessarily want to call it an event, but the ability to taste somebody's wine at their facility and have a meal with it. Uh, so a catered mm -hmm. meal like that 
and and that and people want that, mm -hmm. and so I, I think it's brought a lot of people out to the wine country um, from the local area, whether it's Salem, Portland, Eugene, mm -hmm. um, Seattle. Uh, people even come from Seattle for some special events that we have. Um, so, so it's just uh, it's just kind of a whole. Uh, economy of itself that it's been that it's created mm -hmm. and what do you see in the future <laughs> well um, there has to be a limit and 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 I think there are limitations that that are, are good mm -hmm. in, in in whether they're land use laws or or their uh, laws that that to ensure the really the sustainability of what we have um, I, I think that um, at least I am seeing that when you go over Dundee Hills, you're just seeing a lot more vineyards being planted. <laughs> and driving through Yam Hill, Carlton, uh, AVA, uh, a couple weeks ago, it, it's amazing how many vineyards are being planted. Yeah. Uh, went up to one um, vineyard and I don't think there's going to be a lot of other vines planted because it was basically a mountain you had to drive up. <laughs> and, uh, but they have a, a wonderful spot up on top, about 800, 900 feet. Um, but that's one thing I've always said is that in, in Oregon, you really have to travel to places. But I, I think we're really going to see more and more vineyards much closer to one another mm -hmm. um, than we've ever seen before. But hopefully we'll keep the um, um, the ecosystem in place to where it's it's not a, a mono environment uh, such as they've created in some parts of uh, France, mm -hmm. um, which which means you've you've got to have and we're fortunate to have oak savannas here, and and you know blackberries are not indigenous to to Oregon but they grow like <laughs> uh, like a wildfire spreads. Um, and, and those create a balance with insects that, that is a must that you have to have in your, your sure. vineyard. But then you also have, um, you know, birds that are important, hawks that are important to, to sustaining the vineyard properly because you do have rodents mm -hmm. such as gophers and, and other uh, types of uh, animals that uh, can do harm to the soil and, and the vines. So, um, so you got to have that proper balance. Mm -hmm. What about in terms of the size? You mentioned a limit. Do you see more wineries buying other wineries within the state? Do you see uh, growing to a thousand wineries? There are fifteen hundred wineries in the state. What do you see? Oh yeah, I, I think you'll see both of that. <laughs> I think you're definitely going to see wineries buying wineries, and certainly, you know, France, mm -hmm. um, California. Mm -hmm. um, you know, have had people come to invest, sure. but that's good. I mean, I think you just go through um, a metamorphosis that that will create and and spawn off other uh, businesses, meaning other wineries and other vineyards. Um, and 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 I think you observe it in the business world, and the wine business won't be any different. That you you'll find some mega producers, mm -hmm. and you'll find. Um, that there's always room for startups, and um, because people like that's the small, mm -hmm. smallness uh, aspect as well. 
Um, and I think that's one thing that, that hopefully Oregon won't lose is that, uh, the smallness that you feel. Mm -hmm. But even with uh, those that have come in to purchase, um, they've bought individual brands and they're not just changing the brand mm -hmm. to, to a single name, which is really, really good. Mm -hmm. And because um, obviously when you buy another winery, you are buying that brand and their followers. So, uh, but it, it, it's change and, and everything and everybody goes through change. And so it, it'll, it'll, it'll be painful for some and, and not so painful for others, but those that can adapt um, will be able to um, endure and it'll still be a great, a great wine country. So what about the future for Stolwer specifically? Well, um, <laughs> I think every year we have to go through some changes. You know, we've already done some things that, that I originally had not envisioned mm -hmm. to be done. Um, other than building out the vineyard, uh, we've, we've had to add more production facilities. Um, we've, we've had to add um, volume because of the, the demand that we've been able to, to have. Um, we've been able to add, <clears throat> you know, different tiers of, of wines, as I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that would probably take place. Um, but in the future, it, uh, you know, you don't want to stop growing, you don't want to stop learning, because the opposite happens uh, if, if, you d if you allow that. So uh, we'll continue to refine and continue to focus and, and probably expand mm -hmm. the way the present day looks. And do you have any kind of succession plan in place? Um, well, I have a couple sons that uh, I, I trust that they will be the, the succession. Mm -hmm. uh, I've told them that since uh, probably the fifth grade, um, <laughs> that they, they someday they better be prepared. Um, and one of them's here uh, now, mm -hmm. and he does a wide variety of things. Um, and then the other one, I assume, at some point will do something, whether it's this business or, or the staffing business or, or whatever. But yeah, I, mean, I think they'll be poised to, to take it on. So what advice would you have for someone who wanted to get into the wine industry today? Advice to get into the wine industry today? Well, I, my theme has been pretty even or pretty consistent that mm -hmm. make sure you have enough money when you start. <laughs> um, and you know, the old adage, and I'm not going to even make comment about it other than uh, it is a capital intensive business and um, you, you need to be equipped for that. Now, I, I say that, but if somebody wants to be in the wine business, I'd say don't own a winery and don't own vineyards. <laughs> Just rent space and buy the grapes. That's the best way. Make good wine and then know how to sell it. So um, I've said that often. I mean, that's kind of the two ends of the spectrum is be totally virtual mm -hmm. and make it or own everything. So obviously something in between is, is where you ideally want to be um, in terms of the ease of, of getting into the business. So I'm curious on that. Um, you mentioned that we talked a little bit earlier about selling wine. 
how do you go about selling wine now if you're trying to break into this kind of market? Well, um, I, fortunately enough, there are weekends that um, the different areas um, put on, mm -hmm. and you know, and we have support help from associations, etc. But Memorial Weekend is, is a huge weekend, um, uh, and Thanksgiving weekend is a huge weekend. Mm -hmm. But um, you, you've got to be able to get a little publicity. I think publicity is important, um, and marketing is is kind of the beginning of getting that publicity. Um, you have to have, I think, some pretty good packaging. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a big fan or giving advice that you got to have a fancy name or you know some crazy name <laughs> on on your label, um, but but it, it just you know you start small, you don't overproduce, and 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 you you have a place to sell your wine, um, and then you, then you have to go out and sell it directly, and there's a lot of uh, winemakers that have made their wine and then gone out to restaurants directly and sold their wine and then they deliver it mm -hmm. as well. So they don't have a distributor, they self-distribute. Right. So um, in getting started, that, that, that helps. Um, and they get their wine on the wine list and people are able to taste it. You go to different tastings, retail shops put on tastings, so they go and, and they do it. And you just slowly accumulate a mailing list and, and, and then build it and build it and build it. So the last question I have for you uh, is, uh, what's the what's the one thing about Stoller that makes you the proudest? Like, what are you proudest of here? Oh, I, I just think um, it's it's what the people have accomplished to get us to where we are today. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I was fortunate enough; one of the first people I hired had had experience in the wine industry uh, in California. And she she was mostly in, you know, marketing and direct sales mm -hmm. and, and so forth, and uh, that was a big help. And the next person was someone who'd never been in the wine industry, but learned it and had a great personality and and, and she did a great job. And then then you find additional people that have more experience, and and have been experienced in the in the wine business in some way or trade. And then you, you just get that accumulation of great talent that produces great results. Um, and then in the, in the end, it's, it's whatever your customer uh, thinks of you. And, and when you, I mean, that's the end result is what you have to have is customers that enjoy. And um, yesterday I had a chance to, to be around here and I always run into people that I know, always run, and, and I would never have known they were visiting here, but they bring friends out and because they just enjoy coming here to be with our people, to be with our wine, and to be with the, the view that, that we're able to provide them. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College.
The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.